Come on in, sit back and relax. You're listening to episode 201 of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. And I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz, founder of Ezra Group Consulting. This podcast features interviews, news, and analysis on the trends and best practices all about wealth management technology. My guest for this episode is uh, one of the most well-known leaders in the industry, Steve Lockshin. Now, Steve is a serial entrepreneur in the wealth advisory industry. Uh, he's a principal of RIA Advice Period uh, and co-founder of Vanilla, a software platform for uh, estate advisory. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today, uh, this uh, estate planning software provider called Vanilla that Steve co-founded. And uh, But so just to give you a little more insight and background on Steve, in case you live under a rock and don't know uh, know him. Uh, prior to, to co-founding uh, RIA Advice Period in 2013, Steve was chairman of Convergent Wealth Advisors, a company he founded in 1994. Uh, he later um, um, founded CMS Reporting, which was rebranded as Fortigent, a company you might be aware of, a uh, leading provider of outsourced wealth management solutions with more than $35 billion in assets on its platform, which was later acquired by LPL Financial. So you see the pattern here. Steve helped pioneer the independent advisory industry, building one of the largest independent RIAs in the nation, Lydian Wealth Management, which was acquired by City National Bank. Steve is widely known for his contemporary approach to wealth advisory, as well as his estate planning knowledge, and is a frequent speaker on both topics. In 2011, Steve was named the number one independent financial advisor in the United States by Barron's. Uh, Steve grew advice period to over $5 billion in AUM before it was sold to Mariner Wealth Advisors in 2021. Now, just besides being a uh, the number one financial advisor, starting multiple companies, he is also uh, an investor, a savvy investor, uh, being in early, uh, getting in early on funding of uh, very su successful fintech firms, including Betterment, Quovo, Wealthbox, and financial planning vendor Advisor, which was acquired by Orion. Uh, as I mentioned, Steve and I talk about the estate planning software Vanilla. We kind of get off topic a little bit. It's, it's just hard to resist asking Steve about lots of other things, uh, just considering his uh, his breadth and depth of experience. Know you're going to like this interview. I really, uh, I always like talking to Steve. Um, before we start uh, jumping into the episode, um, throw out a quick statistic. Uh, estate planning represents $100 billion in value on an annual basis. And Vanilla estimates it could address approximately $20 billion of that market. That's uh, more than 10%. Uh, market share is their goal. <clears throat> we'll see about what Steve has to say about that. But before we get into the interview, I have a message for you. If you are an executive at a wealth management firm, your tech debt is holding back your business growth. Trust me on this. Your, your software platform is old and rusty and falling apart and needs an overhaul. Your disparate systems don't communicate well with each other. And I know it's driving your ops team and your advisors crazy with all the manual processes they have to set up. Uh, they live in Microsoft Excel, and there's lots of manual errors. So if you're in charge of tech or ops at a broker-dealer, an RIA, a family office, or a TAMP, you should run, not walk to our website, ezragroup.com, and fill out the Contact Us form on the homepage. Our experienced team can evaluate your current technology ecosystem, deliver targeted recommendations, optimize your existing systems and operations, or run an RFP to help you implement new software to take your firm to the next level. You can take advantage of our free consultation offer by going to ezragroup.com. All right, a couple quick housekeeping notes. Um, uh, please go to our website and um, sign up for our newsletter. You can scroll to the bottom of the homepage and do that. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. 
Uh, check out investinothers.org. It's a charitable organization that we support. Uh, their annual gala is in two weeks in Boston. I'm going to be at that. If you're in Boston, please uh, hit me up. Uh, and that's it. So let's get this thing started. I have a message for you. If you are the executive at a broker-dealer, enterprise RIA, family office, or a TAMP, your tech debt is holding you back. Your old software platforms are rusty and falling apart, and they need a complete overhaul or to be replaced entirely. Your disparate systems don't communicate with each other, and it's driving your ops staff and advisors crazy with manual processes and other errors. If this describes your company and your tech infrastructure, you should run, not walk to our website, ezragroupllc.com, and fill out the Contact Us form on the homepage. Our experienced team can evaluate your technology ecosystem, deliver targeted recommendations, optimize your existing systems and operations, or run an RFP RFI and help you implement new software to help take your firm to the next level. And a few quick housekeeping notes before we continue. We at Ezra Group support a number of nonprofit organizations that do fantastic work for a variety of causes. One you should check out is the Invest in Others Foundation, which you can learn more about at investinothers.org. Please subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And now, let's kick this thing off. All right, Steve Lockshin. Everyone knows who you are. No intros are required. Well, where are you calling in from, my friend? I'm in uh, Seattle, my uh, my summer place. Stay out of the heat. That is awesome. Well, we, I was just talking about how I'm, I haven't got out of New Jersey, and it's always hot. It's just the, it's the worst. Well, Florida was a wise choice to escape the heat in the summer. <laughs> well, we, we have clients down here, so I, I don't, I'm not coming here for the weather. I'm coming here for the clients. Yeah, it's certainly not the place to be. Uh, it's like out of the frying pan in New Jersey into the Florida fire. Exactly. Uh, but, but thanks for, for joining. We're, I'd love to talk about Vanilla. Um, among the, the many um, companies you, you've, you've started, um, and, and you've talked about um, why you started Vanilla. My question is, how do you get this kind of company off the ground? Having an idea that you want to build uh, a firm like this, how what's what is it, what goes through your head, and, and how do you actually get that started to to launch a, a company like this? Uh, th this was one of those, you know, uh, necessity was another invention, and it, as you mentioned, you know, I've talked about it before. We I started to solve a problem we had. I never intended to start a business, um, and. I showed it to some of my peers. Uh, I've got a study group uh, that had, you know, Marty Bicknell and Ron Carson and a bunch of other folks. And they were like, well, that's cool. We, I'd like that too. And at that point I said, all right, well, let's, why don't we all fund it? And uh, then we can share it, if you will. And that went well enough that we're like, there's actually a there there. Um, and we, I brought in professional um, investor uh, in Van Rock, and they helped me hire a, a great CEO. So, you know, when you say run it, I really don't run anything. Um, <laughs> I want to get hooked up with good people. That's part probably the key. Just bringing bringing good people, having well, having a good network. I mean, if I had a study group with Ron Carson and Marty Bicknell in it, that's that's a pretty high power study group. Uh, we have a lot of fun. <laughs> good group of people. Yeah, it's the, that's one of the nice things about this industry. I mean, particularly the larger firms i mean very collegial a lot of people should we don't compete with one another so it was, it's always been a great place to share ideas and try and make each other better 
And that's one thing I like about the industry that there isn't a lot of, you know, backstabbing or undercutting. You know, there seems to be a fair amount of everyone realizes. And some sometimes we compete. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of my clients um, on the uh, the fintech side almost compete in, with, their, with with their clients and compete with their partners. So there's a lot. Everyone's moving into everyone else's space, but. In the end, it's it is a small industry, and we all have to work together for the, for our our mutual clients. Yep, agreed, agreed. But it's fun. It's a fun industry, little cottage industry. It's a it's a little backwater of financial services that we, we seem to be, have, have found ourselves in. Yep. But with with Vanilla, so um, as it's grown, it's it's already a couple of years old. It's already four years old. Um, go, where do you see it going, and and how much um, direction? do you give when you, when obviously you have a CEO though, it's already being run, but how much uh, interaction do you have? And, and what are some of your thoughts of where you want to bring the company? Uh, that's a loaded question. This, this podcast could get me in trouble because when they hear all the stuff that I say, they're going to be like, I can't <laughs> believe you said that. Um, I definitely have designs on where it goes just to, in the touch on why I'm in Seattle. So I live about a half a mile up the lake from the CEO. Um, when I came out to interview him, I fell in love with where he lived. I'm like, all right, well, I'll uh, I'm going to move there. And so that may be a little stalkerish. It got worse when he moved to Arizona in the winter, and now I moved to Arizona. Um, so I'm following him around. But um, I, I'm I'm involved. I, my title is executive chairman. I don't have a paid job. I don't have any people responsibility. But I'm pretty involved in product design um, and pushing the things that I think are important. Um, and this really emanated from something that I thought of and continue to think about. And so we can talk about where it's going to go, but I, I have very strong beliefs on what the system can do, uh, not today, but in the future. So what are some of those beliefs? What do you think the system can do? I mean, you started out more document evaluation, you know, uh, OCR, um, and then, so that's your, for the first step and that did pretty well. And there's definitely a need for that. Where, what's the next steps here? Are we going to a full fledged estate planning application? Uh, where do you see it happen? Yeah, it really started out as a balance sheet um, that nobody provided a balance sheet that broke things into um, what's in your state, what's out of your state, what's GST exempt versus non-GST exempt, grantor trust, et cetera. So you would get a, you know, and the basic financial planning tools, you could see maybe some stuff that's in trust, but and you could see total assets, but you really couldn't see the benefits of moving things from one place to another. So that's what it started with. We got into documents because we really needed something to drive uh, people to use it. We knew there were a lot of people that needed documents. And the other thing that we set out to do, and I think it does very, very well today, is illustrate what someone's estate looks like. So it's very dynamic. So instead of a you know PowerPoint or Visio uh, illustration that's static that you might get from an attorney uh, or from an advisor, it's a dynamic uh, illustration of your estate, and it goes much deeper. What I ultimately, if we get all the way to the end, what I wanted to do is be a place where people in the financial services industry exchange information. So. Um, sometime next year in the roadmap, 
we'll be able to invite an insurance agent in where they can upload the, the client's insurance information. And you can invite the lawyer in where they can upload information if we haven't otherwise collected it. And all the other folks that play around with the client's uh, financial circumstances. And because we'll be giving each of them something back, in terms of information, they'll want to keep things updated. Um, and if this goes well, first, it's an exchange um, of all this information. So everything will be in one place um, and will be kept contemporary because people want to. Second, all the data that comes out of it will help us um, automate uh, ideas. So it will be able to identify this person's a public company executive, they're section 16, they've got concentrated equity and should be doing a grad, or there's a disconnect from their uh, gift tax return on their lifetime exemption versus their GST exemption. And we've got some non-exempt assets, so do a late allocation and things like that. So all the rules that are in, let's say a great planner's head will be in the software. And like any robo, it's always on, it's unemotional and it's looking for opportunities. Um, and the whole objective is to make advisors look great. I think data is behind a, a lot of companies' um, business models where it wasn't in the past. Now we're seeing the ability, of, it's more than just the software, more than selling the software, gathering the data and being able to generate insights off that data is much more valuable because anybody can kind of build software. But in order to, to build a, an application that has the breadth and depth and bringing in all that data and then taking those rules and turning that into software that more advisors or state planners can then access is the true value. I, I, I agree. And, but data is the key to everything. I mean, that was always underlying um, the mentality of starting a company. I think it's probably one of the things that got Venrock and Insight interested was the fact that if this went well, we would have so much data and all the things that we could do with it. And then once all that data is in the system, it be, would become very, very sticky because nobody wants to go through this again, uh, getting all the information in one place. Um, but we didn't want to build pipes um, like the aggregators did. We'd rather just use other aggregation tools. So we basically connected to all the PFMs. So whether it's Adapar, Black Diamond, uh, all that information flows into the system. And then, as I mentioned, you could ultimately collect the stuff that doesn't flow through there directly from the sources. Something we love here at Ezra Group is data and integrations. So yeah. we, 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 we saw a big need for more transparency around integrations. And we launched our, uh, our Wealth Tech Integration Score research to be able to highlight how different applications integrate. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. So when, when you were building out those connections to PFMs, is that just the first step or will, will there be other integrations down the road? There's gonna be a lot more integrations. Uh, if you think the Plaid, Yodley, you know, things like Salesforce. Uh, it, mentally, I kind of share your philosophy around data. You should share everything. I want APIs on both ends of this so that ultimately anybody who wants to push data or pull data from the system can. And so that it becomes integral to any partner solutions, particularly when you get to the enterprises, like they have their own data solutions that um, have lots of very different complex endpoints. Um, and we need to give them the flexibility to build into our system. Otherwise we're gonna go crazy trying to build to their system. Um, so 
I'm for, I'm all for the free flow of data. Um, and I think the the days of uh, withholding data are are going to be short for most folks. We can only hope, yeah, that those days are gone. Uh, you know, we we do spend a lot of time trying to encourage companies to share more. I mean, part of our integration scoring requires uh, gathering this data about about their APIs, about who they integrate with. And a lot of it's very uh, opaque. So trying to bring more transparency. So we uh, we applaud more transparency in the industry. I, th I think it benefits everybody. But remember, this is an industry that benefits from slow advancement. I think you see that across the board with certain software providers, custodians, et cetera. I don't know if it helps them if everyone got access to all this data and the ability to set up accounts quickly. And so that's that's part of what we're fighting uh, with that information. And some of it is just the complexity of all the systems. You know, mm -hmm. I remember the first integration we built, they're gone now, with Leg Mason years ago when we built mm -hmm. our first performance system. This has to be 1995. Uh, I think they had like 11 ways of saying cash. Like they had 11 different inputs for cash uh and that was just cash so just imagine how hard it was for everything else and i don't, I don't know if it's gotten any better in, in some ways yes in some ways no right, there, there's still those types of issues uh especially in bringing multiple platforms multiple data providers multiple custodians uh everyone runs into those issues that you've got to normalize the data in effect uh to, yeah. be able to, to roll this up i'm starting to see a lot of folks creating i haven't i'm, I'm not I can't say if I've seen it successfully yet, but a lot of folks creating data lakes and trying to normalize the data and putting mm -hmm. their end on it. Um, and so that may be the next iteration of what this looks like. Um, I hope so, uh, but it would be great if there really was great middleware to normalize data so folks could do more with it. Because ultimately, I, I believe it trickles down to the economy. Like if we do well for consumers, they save more, there's more money in the system, you know, I think it helps us, you know, not to get on a, a soapbox, but as Americans, basically. Um, and so I, I do hope that's where we go. Let me just take a quick break from this interview to talk about the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to uh, be participating in this charitable organization, and they give me the honor of uh, every year helping to judge some of the charities that are going to be awarded uh, money. And uh, you can get uh, money for your charity if you are a financial advisor or an advisory firm. And you can also uh, participate in a program that Invest in Others is running called the Charitable Champions. This recognizes financial advisory firms that give back to their communities. Let me just read a little bit. This is on their website, investinothers.org. Uh, the Charitable Champions recognizes financial advisory firms that give back to their communities by promoting a culture of philanthropy amongst their financial advisors and staff. You can submit your firm name uh, to the, the, uh, the organization. Uh, the application is already open. The deadline is July 7th, and the winners will be announced August 16th. Submissions will be evaluated blindly by a panel of advisors based on criteria including leadership and culture, events and activities, incentives, contributions, and impact. Now, I'm not a judge on this. I judge other, I judge usually advisor charities. And um, it's very difficult to do that kind of judging because they give us 10 charities with 10 advisors. And we have to decide which advisor gave the most back to their charity and helped them the most. It's really tough. Uh, but, you know, all the money is going to a great cause. 
So please go to investinothers.org. And if you are uh, uh, running a financial advisory firm, sign up for the charitable champions list. There is um, there is a movement in some firms to do that. We are seeing some larger companies uh, do that. Uh, uh, I believe Carson Group, uh, your friend Ron Carson, I believe they've got a data lake. Um, yep. You need to be uh, at that level to really build it out and manage it. Um, I mean, that's really, I think, the future at some point, because if you think about it, one of, the, one of my pet peeves is that all of the data is locked in the applications. Right? Mm -hmm. and you happen to mention Venrock and Insight were interested because your, your application becomes sticky because you have the data. But my point of view is that the data really belongs to the client, but they don't have any way to store it. So the financial planning data is in financial planning tools. The CRM data is in the CRM tools. There are uh, portfolio management data is in the portfolio management system. And it's very difficult to bring those all together in a third-party system to a Tableau or something. It's 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 on top of all that, rather than, well, if they own the data, they had a data lake. That wasn't that, now a data lake itself isn't normalized. That's not what a data lake is, but to bring in all these different types of data, and then you would feed it back into the CRM and you would feed it back into the performance reporting tool so the, the, that the wealth management firm itself would own that data. If they want to replace their estate planning tool with something else, they just plug it in because they they control that. But right now, that's we're way far away from that type of utopia. Yeah. You, well, you're describing exactly what I believe it is. Um, and that's why I said the folks that are protectionists, I think, are going to run out of runway on that. But I actually think it goes one step further. I think the consumer should be able to tokenize their data and literally be able to turn off and on who gets to see it. So here's everything about me. Here's all the data that's tied to me. And now I'm going to give it to Craig's firm. And I don't want to give it to Craig's firm anymore. I'm going to turn it off and I'm going to give it to Jimmy's firm and whatever it's going to be. And, and that's what I think the real future of data is. Um, whether it's blockchain or some future derivative, mm -hmm. that's, that's how we protect it. But I should be able to carry my medical records, my financial data, everything around with me in the cloud, you know, in a token. There, there's pros and cons to that, right? So once all your data is being carried around, anybody can just sort of grab it if you're not careful with it. And okay. most consumers aren't as sophisticated enough to know who they're turning their data on and off for now because they're so used to just giving it to everyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, how they penetrate the data versus what they have. I, look, I'm a big believer. If my stuff's on the dark web, like mm -hmm. everybody else's, like if somebody wants to know my social security number and all that, it's it's out there. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to really hop off the grid if you want to protect all that stuff. Um, so hopefully the institutions are doing a good job of protecting money flow, but it still requires a phone call to verify the instructions mm -hmm. for wires, et cetera, et cetera. So we got a long way to go. Are you working with any companies that are looking to do this for, for financial data? No, there's no one that I've seen. Um, I mean, my original investment in Plaid was partially, uh, not Plaid, sorry, Quovo, which became Plaid, uh, was hoping that they would head down that path, but ultimately they integrated into Plaid. It was a great investment, um, but you know, Plaid's still in the business of identification and, and sharing of data. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but they certainly could go in that direction, which would be great. Because it seems like it would be super, really beneficial to consumers if they had that. If it was, if it was, if it was easy to use, like your smartphone is easy, like it's an app, like here's my data. Okay, now I'm going to give it to Chase. Now I'm going to give it to JP Morgan. And that, now I'm turning it off because I'm not working with them anymore. It was just, it was just that easy. You know, it was iPhone easy. Yep. Then that would be something that would really empower them. And 
I mean, do you, do you think it would be related to the way the EU is doing their um, their privacy, where consumers, you know, data has to move and data has to be owned by by the uh, the consumers? That's what I believe. I mean, it is it is my data, so I, I think you know my account and pick your institution should be my data. It's not their data, and I should be able to decide where and how I share it. And I think in the aggregation wars, that's effectively already happened. Whether you're scraping or there's direct pipe to it. Um, but I, I do think there needs to be a, a data evolution. And I always say there needs to be an intersection of uh, digestibility and accessibility in order for it to be a successful product. Like, as you said, it needs to be the iPhone. You don't need an instruction manual. It needs to be very intuitive uh, and very, very easy to access, but safe. That's a great statement. Uh, the intersection of digestibility and accessibility. And that, well, and that's what we're trying to do with, you know, vanilla is if you can make complex things simple, you know, I think Steve Jobs, you know, made a comment about this years ago, then you, you can take over the world. And I think in our space, there's a whole lot. Of, and I don't mean just vanilla space in the wealth advisory space. There's a whole segment of advisors, that I think, very purposefully make things unnecessarily complex hmm. because it keeps them in their role. Mm -hmm. And I believe it should be the opposite, that if we really are good and confident in what we do and add value in the right places, then we'll make it exceptionally simple. Um, and that's what we try to do with the product. So estate planning is one of those things you go see a attorney, you sit there for a few hours, have a conversation, they throw out some acronyms, you have no idea what they mean. You may have some cursory understanding, you leave, you don't hear from them for months, and then you're supposed to read 800 pages of documents and figure this out. Um, and the diagrams don't make any sense if you don't know what you're looking at. Even if you do know what you're looking at, they don't always make sense. There's a way to make this simple. And that's what we've tried to do, where you can click on something and see all the key things you need to see, but you don't have to have it all vomited on you at one time in one place. And ironically, when we go show, let's say, some of the current practitioners what we do, they are still stuck in the past. I want to see everything. I, want, I need to see everything. Show me who the trustee is. Show me who the co-trustee is. Show me what stage. Show me this, that, that. And you end up having something this big that could be one line and you should click through to, you know, just like a performance report. Tell me what my total return is, then give me the ability to drill down if I want to see more, but not everybody wants to see the micro. So don't force the micro upon the consumer. Um, you need to know your audience and give them the ability to go up and down. Once they trust what you've given them is high quality, they'll find their center point of complexity. Yeah, we, we, I get a lot of demos of new products, um, as you can imagine. So it's, just, it's a couple a week, and I can't tell you how many products come in, and they're so complex. The interface are so um, overly, and I, I have a degree in computer science. So I love gadgets and technology. And even for me, it's overly complex. I'm like, where do I start? You want to, what you expected, you know, is this, this is a B2B2C to, to play? You want in, end investors to operate this? You know, well, we were looking for data junkies. There's only a small percentage of the consumers who are data junkies. If you want to grow this into a big business, it's got to be simple. You know, it's got to be, uh, can I retire? Where's my money? I'm done, right? That's, you want to say, well, I've got 600 categories. No one's going to, to wade through all that. I, I agree. As my dad always said, he said, I'll pay extra for people not to show up. I hate these meetings. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm an English major. So it has to be simple for me. 
but I really, it, it needs to be digestible. Like I said, you know, the, it was one of the things that attracted me to Betterment originally was they made it simple. Um, it, it really is the iPhone. You should not need an instruction manual for anything today. Mm -hmm. That is a good, uh, it's a good recommendation. If you need, need it, if you need instruction manual, it's too complicated. Yeah, your, your product's doomed if it needs an instruction manual. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the uh, the data and data being the key. Do you see the vanilla being more like an automated tool that's going to be providing advice? Uh, like in you know, the 80-20 rule, that 80% of the advice around an estate plan is pretty much boilerplate or very common across uh, across consumers or investors. Uh, and it's the 20% that we require an estate planning expert. So would, would the, the software provide that advice or is that something you're leaving for the estate planners? Now, in, in my version of the future, so, it, and I don't have uh, sole decision rights on this, mm -hmm. um, the, the product both serves the consumer and the advisor. And so for the advisor, it suggests something for the client. So let's say, you know, Craig, it, sees in your plan that you should do something. It notifies the advisor first. If the advisor doesn't do it, which unfortunately is what happens with a lot of uh, advisors today, it's not in their um, tool set uh, emotionally or, or in intellectually, so they ignore it. Um, it should notify you as the consumer so that that opportunity isn't missed. And I think that's what happens today. If you're an advisor that likes to focus on investments or you like to focus on insurance, you may have data that allows you to do a great job in other parts of that financial plan, but because it's not where you're interested in focusing, you just ignore it. Well, the computer shouldn't ignore it. The computer should identify the opportunity and give the advisor a chance to be the hero. And if the advisor is too lazy to be the hero, then it should give the client the opportunity to succeed. Um, and so not everything is black and white. You can certainly tell someone from a economic perspective, if it makes sense, but sometimes there's emotional decisions to go along with things. And that's where, at least today, I think the advisor is gonna play an important role, but long, long-term, I think the computers are going to take that away as well. It's a never-ending, um, not a cycle, but it's a never-ending story where technology is going to keep pushing everyone up the food chain. You know, no matter what industry you're in, technology is constantly creeping up and taking over more mundane tasks and more manual things that were manual and automating things that that at some point you thought was your value added, but now it's no longer your value added because it's automated. Whether it's yeah. building, you know, we still pay 100, 150 basis points to an advisor to build a basket of ETFs. Right. That seemed perfectly normal. But, yeah. you know, it's not, but then we don't have to do that because Betterman came along and Wealthfront came along and uh, they could do it for 30 basis points. Uh, so the, some either advisors went out of business, they retired, or they moved up the food chain and started doing more valuable stuff. So do you see vanilla pushing advisors to do more stuff because now you don't have to do the balance sheet anymore. You don't have to do the estate plan diagram. We, we don't have to identify planning opportunities. We're going to automatically generate this stuff. So what, what else can advisors do on top of this to be more value added? I have to ask you a question. The answer your question is over what time frame? Because what I think is going to happen in five years versus 10 years versus 20 years is very, very different. Um, you know, we're still in an industry where... Um, there isn't a great correlation between cost and quality. So it's still sold to a person. And if they see the value, they pay it. Uh, but there are lots of great advisors that uh, 
In fact, the story I'll tell you is one of my first clients way, way, way back when, when I started in the, in 1994, uh, we started doing performance analysis for folks. So we'd go in we'd collect three years worth of statements and we'd do a performance analysis and tell them where their asset allocation was off or their advisors weren't, their managers weren't doing well. And so one of the clients says, uh, this is great because I got an advisor that I can't stand and I want to fire him and I need a reason. And I got an advisor I really like and I want to move everything to that advisor. So we did the analysis and I said, well, Eddie, I got good news and bad news. <laughs> just, what is it? And so the good news is we got all the data. We did the analysis. The bad news is the guy you like is screwing you. <laughs> the guy you don't like is doing a great job. Um, and so I, I think what's going to happen is this is going to go from an industry where anybody can get into it and you don't really have to have a lot of expertise other than being a salesperson. Um, and it's going to make us better, which I think is is long, long overdue. I mean, any idiot can get in our industry and take a series 65 and next thing you know, you're in an IAR. Um, so whereas if you want to practice law or drive a truck or be a doctor, you have to get a different kind of, of license and have continuing education, et cetera. So I, I think it's going to push uh, requirements up. I think software is going to alleviate, as you said, basic things, but more importantly, it's going to push advisors to be smarter in different areas because they're not going to get the chance to ignore things that they otherwise might ignore. But longer term, I think the marketplace is going to narrow because tech is going to do a lot more. And the folks who are coasting by and getting paid very well to do very little um, other than make people feel good, uh, those folks are probably going to fall away because software is going to do that. I mean, just, just look at I think in nine, uh, not nine, I think uh, seven years ago, I did a talk for Vanguard and I was going over Google Duo, which was already talking like people. I mean, so how long is it until between the LLMs and the technology that's corresponding with us, uh, um, which exists today, is doing a better job than a client and it's completely unemotional, um, and, but can detect how you're feeling because your smartwatch is registering your heartbeat mm -hmm. and you know how you you're how much you're sweating and how you feel as the market goes up and down that mm -hmm. kind of data is going to dramatically change what we do uh for our clientele the follow-up question to the data um is will you be using artificial intelligence at vanilla to do, to do these things do you have any any designs on that are you looking at Using the, I mean, I'm not sure what generative uh, AI can do when it comes to a, to an estate plan yet, but is there any? Are there any things that are in the works for that? We already are testing. Um, so the the ingestion of documents and abstraction of those documents were we've already built a called V1. We're not using until we get to pretty close to 100 percent accuracy, and we're in the 90 percent range right now. Um, you know, every lawyer has their own form. There is very little uniformity. Um, and then you don't always get a readable document. So now you have to have high quality OCR uh, that goes along with this. And so that's the stuff that we're working on. So taking the abstraction that might take an hour down to 10 minutes, let's say is our first order. But if we can take it down to 10 seconds or a fraction of a second, that's even better. Um, and these are all things that will reduce the costs 
um, increase the pace at which advisors can serve clients. So if you look at the institutions and the you know millions of customers they serve, it really will help um, them first and foremost. Whereas an advisor can get through their client list in a year if they want to. Do you see estate planning in being more, uh, I hate this term, democratized with software like vanilla? Uh, there was a recent survey at Michael Keats's, his, his recent uh, biannual tech survey, estate planning amongst independent advisors uh, has hit 35% adoption rate. So there's still a, a lot of green field there. Um, I'm sure it's probably, probably something similar in, in other areas of for advisors as well. Do you see the same thing? Do you see the same growth rate in estate planning? Is that where uh, vanilla is targeting? Uh, yes. So we you started out mentioning docs. We actually took docs off the shelf mm. from all to rebuild it based on all the things that we learned in the first round of uh, docs. And we're about to roll out. It's being tested right now by a bunch of clients. Um, a um, Doc, a, a computer-driven document only. So if you think trust and will, but I'll, I'll just say, because I think they do a very nice job. We started with a very high-end document and kind of descaled it for under 5 million clients. That is the hardest thing to do. Once we've successfully done that, adding in irrevocable documents and things like that is going to be much, much easier uh, for for clients and lawyers alike. So I do think it's gonna get democratized. What I really hope happens is it becomes simplified where there's common phrases and common language. So the lawyer, if, if our business is a cottage industry, I think the legal business is, is two generations removed from that, <laughs> uh, you know, prehistoric, yeah. if you will. Mm -hmm. um, there needs to be some uniformity so that everything doesn't have to re be redone if you switch attorneys, which is pretty much the case today. Attorneys have their own stickiness, don't they? They do. And again, there's no penalty for being slow as an attorney. <laughs> so today, if I go across the top firms that we work with, and I just say, I need a set of core documents for a wealthy client, just basic, you know, core documents. It ranges from 4,000 to 25,000 for the exact same thing. Wow. And there's, it doesn't make any sense, mm -hmm. but they can charge whatever they can charge because their clients are willing to pay it. And that's the reputation that they built or the process that they've gone through. And I think that needs to be significantly compressed. And that's what tech can do. Amen. We want to see that happen here. Well, Steve, oh, we, we have, uh, we've run out of time. Uh, I, I, where can people find out more about Vanilla? Uh, JustVanilla.com is the website, and hopefully they'll hear about it from their peers if they haven't already. Absolutely. Steve, thanks so much for being here, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks. It was fun. Hey, it's Craig again. And here are my three takeaways from this episode. Number one, data is the key to everything. I can't agree with that more. Uh, that was always the underlying mentality of Steve starting uh, this company. And he thinks it's probably one of the main reasons that got some of his investors, including Venrock and Insight, interested was the fact that if it went well, they would have access to a tremendous amount of data, which would enable them to generate insights, identify opportunities, and make the product much more sticky. Number two, Steve is seeing a lot of companies building their own data lakes. 
and this may be the next iteration or the next big thing, but it requires great middleware, and the data eventually must be normalized before it can be fed into other systems. I know at Ezra Group, we are working with a few clients on their building out their data lake, since we see this as a step towards returning control of data back to the wealth management firm and away from vendors. Number three, Vanilla is leveraging artificial intelligence tools. Uh, part One of the things they're doing is, is using it for ingesting a wide range of estate planning documents with every vendor and lawyer and other accountant having a different document format. So having a um, an artificially intelligent driven ingesting process makes it easier to pull that data in. Uh, it increases the accuracy of the extracted data, which we know is important. If you're extracting data from PDFs and it's it's just too many errors, it's a waste of time. Also reducing the amount of time required to do this makes the whole process more efficient. All right, that's all folks. You reached the end of another episode of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. Uh, before you go, please go to our website, ezragroup.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage and sign up for our newsletter. Once a month, you'll receive an email chock full of wealth management goodness, news, information, updates. You will not be disappointed. Uh, thanks for listening and talk to you all next time.